Okay, today we are uh, uh, continuing in Romans chapter 12. We've been there for about three weeks already. And uh, today we, uh, we're beginning to look at, uh, beginning in verse 9, and uh, looking at the next five or so verses down through about verse 13. Uh, over the last uh, three weeks, uh, three weeks ago, we looked at verse 1. We talked about making our bodies a living sacrifice. And, uh, and then two weeks ago, we looked at verse 2. We talked about the issue of being conformed uh, uh, or not being conformed to the world, but rather being transformed. The idea of metamorphosis, though, is the alternative to conformity in, uh, in verse 2. And we talked about how that happens through a process of having our minds renewed, and we talked about how that process of mind renewal takes place. And then last week, we looked at verses 3 through 7. Excuse me. uh, We looked at verse 3 through 8, and and that deals primarily with the subject of our spiritual abilities, our spiritual gifts, and that's what we talked about last week. So, this week we're going to pick it up with verse 9 and get down hopefully through about verse 13. Uh, But before we do that, would you look at verses 3 through 8, the things we looked at last week, and let's just kind of of prompt our memories. What are some of the things we talked about? What are some of the things that stood out to you as we talked about the area of gifts last week? The whole idea that we are so diverse, they can't be our unit. Okay. And mutuality, that we are all part of each other, even though we're doing our... We may have the same gift, but we do it totally differently. Okay. And so that stood out to me that even though we're all one and we're all necessary, even if you have the same gift, you're doing it differently. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We talk about the fact that Paul in uh, Corinthians talks about the fact that there are varieties of gifts and varieties of ministries and varieties of effects. And the way I understand that passage is that, is that we have a certain number of gifts within the body of Christ. Uh, and uh, people debate whether or not we know exactly what all those gifts are or whether, whether or not the, 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 the full list that Scripture gives us in the various places constitute all the gifts and there are no others or whether there are other gifts that may not be listed in Scripture. And I tend to lean towards the second opinion that the Scripture does not necessarily give us all the gifts. But even at that, there are a certain set number of gifts that are given within the body. But, but even with each individual gift, those gifts are carried out in different kinds of ministry. So we talk, for example, the gift of teaching. Teachers uh, teach in all kinds of different types of ministry. Some people... Uh, some teachers preach on Sunday morning in the Sunday morning service and some teachers teach Sunday school class and some teachers uh, teach in seminaries and some teachers blog on the Internet. And so there are all kinds of ministries of teaching. So you have you have one gift, a number of ministries under that gift. And and even within all those ministries, you have a whole variety, of, he says, of effects. There are varieties of results or consequences or ways that these various 
ministries affect and influence people. So what we get is this tremendous diversity across the body of Christ of various ministry, of various gifts, various ministries, and various effects. Okay, what else? Uh, don't think you hire yourself. Or not that you're praying, but don't think your gift is better than someone else's. Nor should you think your gift is less than someone else's. Okay, okay, exactly that. Uh, and actually, both of those are thinking better than ourselves. And uh, and I uh, I made that argument last week. I'll cover that again. But but one way we can think of ourselves as more important or better than others is by thinking that my gift is more important than your gift. You know, if if my gift maybe is more public or maybe more well known or or uh, uh, more people see it or whatever, then I may tend to think that my gift is more important than your gift. If you have a gift of of faith and that particular gift is exercised in the closet of your home in prayer, then people aren't going to see that. They're not going to notice that. And so maybe my gift's more important than yours because mine's more seen. Mine's more obvious. Well, Paul says, don't think that way. Okay, we don't think that way. And uh, But the flip side of that is I can think, well, maybe my gift isn't as important as somebody else's. And so I can afford to neglect my gift and go about living my life and doing my own thing and just, you know, because my gift's not important, it doesn't matter whether or not I exercise my gift. And that really is a way of thinking of myself more important than others also. Because what I then do is I begin to elevate my own life and my own personal needs above the needs of others and I'm thinking of myself more important than others. So whether I'm thinking that my gift is more important or I'm thinking that my gift is less important and therefore I can ignore it, in either way I'm thinking of myself rather than thinking of others. I'm thinking of myself more highly than I think of others. What else? I think we touched a little bit last on measure of faith and what that means. Okay. Okay. And do you remember anything we said about that? And don't say no. <laughs> Uh, one is that we, we all have a measure of faith. Uh, I, I just think the way that, that I've been taught, which is we all have the same level of faith, but it's just the degree that we rely on. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, the way I was seeing it last week in the passage in, in this particular context is I think what Paul is trying to say is that God has given to us the faith that each one of us needs in our situation to exercise our gift. So it is the faith that God has given us to discern our gift and then to exercise our gift. So uh, if I have the gift of teaching, then presumably God has given me the faith necessary to be able to stand up here and trust him and believe him to be working through me in this context. If you don't have the gift of teaching and we stick you up here to teach, it may be more difficult for you to have confidence in God while you're standing up here doing something you have no gift of doing. You know, I, uh, I've always maintained that my gift is not working with small children. I'm glad God gave me five kids and I learned to relate to little kids. But little children, other than my own little children, scare me to death. <laughs> I am intimidated and petrified when I'm around them. Okay. And uh, so you'll, you'll probably, probably never see me back there in that part of the church carrying out a ministry because when I get in that context it's very hard for me to trust God okay and uh, so I have a great deal of admiration for those of you 
who, uh, who where that is your gift and where you do feel comfortable, comfortable ministering and serving in that area. So that's how I think of this idea of the measure of gifts. And commentators differ on that. So they have different views, as we say. But that's, uh, that's kind of how I view it there in, in, that, in that passage. What else? Anything else that stuck out to you last week? What's one of the uh, what's one of the big issues that always comes up when the subject of spiritual gifts is discussed? How do you know? Yeah, how do you know your spiritual gift? And what's interesting to me is that we spend a lot of time in the church trying to tell people how to figure out what their spiritual gifts are. And what strikes me in the New Testament is there's just no clear cut formula or pattern that the scripture gives us. So you would think with all that lengthy three chapter discussion, including, of course, his chapter on love there in First Corinthians uh, 12 through 14, he has this whole long section on gifts and gifts in the context of love and that sort of thing. But he doesn't tell us anything in First Corinthians 12 through 14 about how to figure out what your spiritual gift is. You would think that would be a clue. Well, you would think it would be a clue. Yes. And what is the clue? Don't spend so much time trying to figure it out. Okay. 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 Great. But the one thing, the one point I did make last week is I do think we have a bit of a hint in this passage or in this chapter in Romans 12 about how to figure out what our gift is. And what is that? What have we already talked about in chapter 12 that would be a clue as to how to figure out what our gift is? Verse 2. Verse 2, right. Which is what? to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Okay? So if we, are, if we are going through this process of mind renewal, we learn how, he says, to prove what the will of God is. So if my mind is renewed, I'm able to prove what the will of God is. And certainly that would include, what is my spiritual gift? What is God's will for me, for my place in the body of Christ? What does God want me doing in the body of Christ? What is God's will for me in the church? And one way to determine, or the way perhaps, to determine God's will for me in the church is to go through this process of mind renewal, which when we talked about chapter 2, we discovered that mind renewal involves two things. One, it involves the work of the Holy Spirit, a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the second thing is having our minds submerged in the Scriptures, having our minds submerged and bathed with the Word. And as we bathe our minds with the Word and are sensitive to and listening to the Holy Spirit, our minds are renewed, we're made capable of discerning and knowing the will of God. And one of those areas where that happens is we discover what our abilities, what our spiritual abilities are within the context of the body of Christ. Anything else? Okay. Okay. Do you want to elaborate at all? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. I, I yeah, turn about fair play up here. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, if, if the question is. Not so much whether or not you have a gift. We, we have to remember in Corinthians, when Paul was exhorting the Corinthians, it was a carnal church. It was a carnal church, and yet they had these gifts. So it's actually possible 
to exercise your gift in a carnal way. And so the, the question is, how am I going to use this gift that God has given to me? Okay? How am I going to employ this gift that God has given to me? Because in, in Corinth, you had people who were uh, at least outwardly manifesting their spiritual abilities, their spiritual gifts, but they were carnal people. And Paul was admonishing him about that. Okay, So the question really is not so much whether or not you have a gift or specifically what that gift is, but how are you using that gift? Are you doing it in reliance upon the Holy Spirit and, and, and dependence upon Him and with your measure of faith, etc.? Okay. Well, there were other things we talked about, uh, uh, but let's go on and, and pick up his, uh, uh, his line of thinking then in verse 9, where he makes a... He seems to make a complete break. Now, clearly this passage is connected to the passage before. You know, Paul's not gone completely off the deep end here. So there is some connection here, but there is a break in thought, apparently, because he shifts from the idea of gifts being exercised within the body, within the church, to the more general idea of our Christian conduct, our Christian behavior, particularly as we relate to other people and, and as we relate to people particularly within the context of the church. And so he says in verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And we'll stop there because we'll be doing good to get that far today. But you'll notice in the verses that follow that, he goes on with this kind of one thing after another uh, aspects of Christian character and Christian behavior. Uh, so I just wanted to point that out to you. But... Um, but, but while it is true that Paul seems to make a break here, he doesn't use a, a therefore or a for this reason or whatever at the beginning of verse 9 like he oftentimes does when he's trying to directly link one thought to the previous thought. He doesn't do that here. So there is somewhat of a break in his thought. And yet, I think as we think about what he said back in verse 2 about having our minds renewed so that we can prove, we can establish, we can know we can test and see what the will of God is, that if our minds are renewed, to be able to do that, to know what the will of God is, then these are some of the things we're going to discover. We're going to discover that love, uh, we're going to discover this principle of love without hypocrisy and of, of uh, the abhorrence of evil and the clean. To, these are things we discover when our mind is renewed. Now, one of the things about this passage that strikes me uh, is uh, it's basically just a do list. Okay? Uh, and I'm not real big on do list. Okay? So we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but what fascinates me about this passage is its structure. And we don't really see it in our English translations because our English translators have tried to make it flow more smoothly for us. Okay? Uh, but... In, uh, in the original language, the, the passage has almost no finite verbs. It has no regular verbs. Okay? 
So you just take all the verbs out. They're not there. So even the very first statement, love without hypocrisy, love is a noun in the Greek. You can't tell in the English because uh, in English, love is a noun and love is a verb are the same. Okay, But in Greek, there's a difference. They're spelled differently. And we know that love here is a noun in, in the Greek. So really, this sentence without any verbs simply reads love without hypocrisy. And it's not a verb, it's a noun. So it's kind of like it's descriptive. The, the phrase without hypocrisy is descriptive of the noun love. And then as he goes on, uh, it's it, one way to read this would be uh, uh, as to evil, abhorring. As to good, clinging. Uh, as to brotherly love, devotion to one another. As to, um, where am I here? Uh, as to honor, preference. As to diligence, not lagging. As to the spirit, fervency. As to God, a slave. As to hope, rejoicing. As to tribulation, persevering. As to prayer, devoted. As to the needs of the saints, fellowshipping. As to hospitality, pursuing. So, my point in, in reading it to you that way is to kind of illustrate kind of the abruptness of it in the original language. So, it doesn't kind of flow as, uh, as nice little you know, sentences as we have it in our translation, but it's kind of very abrupt. So a couple commentators said it's like a bullet list. It's just a bullet list, okay? And he's got this list of things and attached to this list of character qualities, how, how those ought to be lived, okay? And uh, so he uses what we call, in grammar, we call participles. As you, if you noticed as I was reading it, I've used a lot of participles. And uh, if you're familiar with grammar, and we won't go into that. But uh, so he uses a lot of participles and and they they carry in this context and commentators are pretty much agreed an imperative force. In other words, in other words, he's, it's not written in the Greek as if they're a command like we have in our English, where he says, uh, where he says, for example, let love be without hypocrisy. That's written as a command in our English. But in the Greek, it's just kind of just stated there. And the imperative nature of it, the command nature of it is just kind of implied. Okay, so all the way through, we just have this bullet list of character qualities and the imperative nature, the command nature of it is just implied in it. Okay, it's not real overt. It's not really out there in your face, so to speak. Okay, so we just have this bullet list of things to do. And as I said, I'm not real big on do this. Now, some of you people are hyper-organized people, and the first thing you do when you crawl out of bed in the morning and fall on the floor is you grab a piece of paper and make a do list, right? And you figure out, what are all the things I have to do today? And you keep that do list with you, and you check it off as you go through life, right? All CEOs do it that way. All CEOs do it that way, which is why I'm not a CEO. I will never be a CEO because I do not do do list. I, I say I don't do do list, but that's a lie because in reality, when I get up in the morning after I've, you know, had my devotional time, made my breakfast and watched the weather on TV and done the very things that, you know, one of the things I do do is I, you know, as I'm kind of sitting there, 
thinking about the day, I think about, okay, what are the things, you know, you know, so I don't write it down and I don't check them off, but I do think a little bit about it. But in general, I don't like do lists because they make me feel guilty by the end of the day because I've never accomplished uh, most things on my do list. So I, so I don't make them and I don't like them. Okay. And so if I'm going through the Bible, I keep encountering them. Apparently, the Lord thinks differently of them than I do because He keeps putting them in there. And He's done one for us here. You know? and, and I like to say, well, shoot, you know, the Christian life, you know, we're saved by grace, we're filled with the Spirit. Why do we need to do this? Why can't we just walk by the Spirit? Why do I need a do list of... You know, a bullet list like we have here of things I need to be doing. Well, but if I'm walking by the Spirit, I ought to know I'm walking by the Spirit, right? Spoken like a CEO. <laughs> well, there's a couple of things about that, Rick. If you're waiting till the morning to make your list, you're behind already. <laughs> See, there's another point where I'm failing. <laughs> you, really are, you really do do that. The, the, the whole idea of this, for me in the Bible, this is probably not what you're going to bring out, but I'll bring out this email. The whole idea is, like Milford said, it is to measure, a way to measure, and if you don't know what the target is, there's no way to hit it. Yeah. And as a fallen person, I'm so so much influenced by all this other stuff. I've got to know. Yeah. You know, living by faith doesn't mean I know. It's living by faith, and that's that's why we have to have a list. Okay, good point. And that's kind of going where I'm going. The thing is that remember back in verse two, he said we had to have our minds renewed to be transformed, right? Okay. And we talked about how that's a lifelong process. It doesn't just happen once. But we go through this lifelong process of having our minds renewed. Okay? Well, that's why we have do lists in the Scripture. Because my mind is not fully renewed yet. And so periodically I come across, and Paul does this in a number of places and other writers as well, give us do lists. They give us this list of things. And what that does is that you know, as I, as I line it up against my life, I can go, okay, you know, I'm not totally renewed here. I'm not totally transformed in this area. Now, as I read through this do list, I'm going, whoa, I've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> okay. That's the other problem with do lists is, particularly these ones in the Bible, is as we encounter them, sometimes they can be a little overwhelming. And so this is really, while this is not a particularly technically difficult passage to teach, it's a very difficult passage to teach because on every one of these points, there's certainly some more than others, but probably on every one of them, I'm going, how am I supposed to stand up in front of people and talk about that? But I just want to remind you of this. Uh, we talked about this before. The difference between the accusations of Satan and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that I discovered many years ago was that when Satan is hitting me with accusations, he, he's like Rambo. 
Okay, it's you know he gets and he hits me with about twenty things to show how lousy I am, and he doesn't encourage me or motivate me at all, right? Okay, because he doesn't want me to change, right? He just wants me to know I'm a skunk. That's all he wants. Okay. So if I read this and and Satan were to take this in my life, I walk away from this do list going, hey, I'm just a miserable failure in every one of these points. That's the accusation of saying, well, what's the conviction of the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit want in our life? He wants us to grow, right? He wants us to change. And the Holy Spirit knows good and well that you can't change in five areas at a time. He knows in your life you can only handle about one, maybe two things at a time, right? And so as we go through this do list... I don't want you to walk out of the classroom thinking, okay, I've got to work on this and this and this and this and this and this and this. I would hope that in just one of these areas we talk about, or maybe two, you would go, I think that's what God wants me focusing on right now at this point in my life. And then just put the others on the shelf and say, I'll get to those when the Holy Spirit brings them up. <laughs> I know their need, but I can only do one or two things at a time. Okay? So he starts out and he talks about love without hypocrisy. And he uses the word agape, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But primarily I just want to focus first on this idea that there is a love which is apparently insincere. There is a love that is superficial. And Paul says that's not the kind of love we want to have particularly in the context of the body of Christ, but certainly uh, uh, in, in all of our lives, throughout our entire life, uh, scope of our life, and with everybody we encounter. What he wants us to have is he wants us to have a love that is not characterized by insincerity or hypocrisy. Now, you've probably heard that this word hypocrisy has a connection in the Greek with a, with a word that, that has the idea of, of play acting, okay? We, we give awards for hypocrisy in our culture. We love hypocrisy, right? We have a whole big ceremony, and many people like to turn on their television and watch it because it's a ceremony in which we honor the greatest hypocrites in our society. What do we call it? The Academy Awards. Exactly. The Academy Awards, okay? Uh, so we we like the, you know we like the the uh, the uh, the person you know the 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 guy who wins the best male hypocrite, and then we have an award for the best female hypocrite. Well, of course we don't think of it in that terms, and 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 I'm not meaning to demean it at all because that, I really love acting. I love good actors. I love watching good actors at work. It's fascinating to me. I love a good hypocrite. As long as I know they're being a hypocrite and it's all out in the open, okay? I love a good actor. But when it comes to love, we don't want good actors. We don't want to be winning the Academy Award for love. We want to be doing the real thing. Now, the way this is actually worded here, as I said, in the Greek, there's no verb here. It's just the noun and the, and the descriptive adjective. Without hypocrisy, okay? So it's, it's love without hypocrisy. And so it doesn't even have a participle, which is a kind of verb. It doesn't even have that here, okay? 
So some commentators think that really this first statement, love without hypocrisy, is kind of the title at the top of the bullet list. Love without hypocrisy, and then here's the bullet list of what constitutes love without hypocrisy. And that's one way to look at it. I'm not sure uh, if that's exactly what Paul had in mind, but that's kind of one way to view the passage. That love without hypocrisy is the kind of the overall description of all the things that come after it. Okay. But whatever the case is, the one thing we do know is that with, in our relationships with other people, we don't want to merely be going through the outward displays of love. We want there to be a real, complete, authentic inner love. And so... So love is more than just good manners. Now, my wife likes to insist that good manners have a lot to do with love, and they are. But good manners can be done without the slightest degree of enthusiasm behind them, right? So it's more than just good manners. It's more than just putting on the outward show. Now, some people say, okay, if I'm not supposed to be insincere in these outward things I do, I'll just stop doing the outward things. But that's not an alternative. You're no better off. You say, well, I'm no longer a hypocrite. Well, yeah, you're no longer a hypocrite, but you're more obnoxious than you were before. So, you know, what have you gained? Okay. So if you're just putting on the outward show and you read this passage and go, well, I don't want to put on an outward show anymore, so I'll just quit doing anything. You've not obeyed the passage. Because there is an implicit imperative there to love. So your only alternative is to cut the hypocrisy, to get authentic. And I've always maintained that I can't do that. I just can't do that. If I want my outward manifestations of love to be genuine from the heart, I'm going to need a change in my heart. I'm going to need God to do that. Well, then he goes on. Oh, well, I was going to point something else out. And this is really a sidetrack. But I want to go over it because we never talk about this. Uh, I've alluded to it a few times in, in the past, but, uh, but it really is something I think we need to understand. Paul uses the word here agape when he says love. He uses the word agape here. He uses the noun uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, the verb is agapeo, to love. Okay, so like I said in Greek, they're spelled differently to us. They're the same in English. Okay. But, but it comes from the word agape. And, and there's a great deal of misunderstanding about that Greek word within the context of the church. Okay? So I want to kind of bust some bubbles here for just a few minutes uh, just to help us think a little bit better about this area of love. Um, a lot of people make, uh, a lot of writers, commentators, preachers, teachers, whatever, make a great deal of distinction between the, uh, the Greek word agape and uh, the Greek word stileo. Okay? And uh, one of the passages where they do this a lot is in, in the end of chapter uh, 21 of John where uh, Jesus is having his discussion with Peter. And he's asking Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you back and forth, Okay. And, and this is where this distinction is. Uh, a lot is made out of this distinction. But I want to talk about this just a minute. Because the common 
idea that many people have is that agape is kind of a very special love. It's a divine love, so to speak. It's often used in reference to God. In fact, all the way through Romans up to this point, whenever Paul has talked about God's love, he's used the word agape. Okay? And so there's a tendency, we have this tendency to think that agape has this kind of special sense to it. It's kind of an elevated, it's the highest form of love. And phileo is, that's a good love, but it's, but it's not as high. It's not as elevated. It's not as special. And so the idea there in, in John is that Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he uses the word agape and Peter responds, Lord, you know I love you. And Peter uses the word phileo. And a great deal is made out of that distinction in that passage. Okay. But the problem is that these words aren't as different as we think they are. In, uh, in, in uh, grammatic studies, word studies, stuff like that, words have what we call a semantic range. Okay, bear with me here for a moment. Okay, and uh, what do I mean by the semantic range of a, of a word? What might I mean by that? Okay, the ways it can be used, how it's it? You encounter the semantic range of a word every time you look a word up in the dictionary. You look a word up in the dictionary, and what do you find? Definition. Plural. Right. You find plural definitions, usually, for most words. Okay, there'll be one or two or three or four or five definitions. Okay, and oftentimes those definitions are just nuances of one another. Okay, slight differences. Sometimes there's quite a bit. But that's the semantic range of a, of a word, okay? It has multiple meanings, okay? But we have words, uh, different words in English or in any language that really kind of say the same thing. What do we call those? Synonyms, synonyms okay? So we have synonyms. And, and so what you have is you have two different words and both of these words have a semantic range. But with synonyms, what you find is that those semantic ranges overlap. So there are times when the words are used when they really mean kind of the same thing. But there are some things, this word, word A, and word B here, word A has some things that fall out of this overlap. And when the word's used that way, it's not synonymous, okay? And I... I you know, we could probably take time and think of examples here, but I don't want to take time to do that. You understand the principle. Well, in any language, I assume in any language, certainly in English and certainly in Greek, you have some words that have a lot of semantic over, overlap. So there's, there's very little what one guy called overhang, or what hangs out beyond the similarity, okay? They're, because they're so closely used. So you have such close that there's, there's a lot of overlap. And very little overhang. Okay. And then you have other synonyms where there's just a little bit of overlap. Okay. What's significant, pardon the grammar lesson, but what's significant about agape and phileo is they have a whole lot of overlap. They have a whole lot of overlap. So when I encounter these two words, two different words, in a passage in Scripture, I have to be very careful before I start saying, this means something different than this. For example, in the passage we're looking at, when he says, let love be without hypocrisy, 
the love there he uses is the word agape. But in the next verse, he talks about what? Brotherly love, okay? And that's actually one, two words in the English, but in, it's one word in the Greek, uh, but it's a compound word in the Greek, and part of that compound word is the word phileo. Okay? Now, the question is, is Paul suggesting in verse 10 a lesser love than he was admonishing us to in verse 9? I doubt that. I doubt that he's suggesting that we really need this really unhypocritical, higher quality of love. But when it comes to brotherly love within the church, we can do the lesser love. See? So, do you see what I'm saying? So, for example, we think that this word agape has this really high sense to it. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, back in that passage in 2 Samuel, remember where where David's son Amnon is lusting after his sister Tamar, the Greek translation uses the word agape. He loved his sister and it uses the word agape. Similarly, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is, is speaking about Demas and talking about why Demas deserted him, and he says, Demas, having loved this present world, uses the word agape. Okay. So, so you get this picture then that agape is not always used in this really high elevated sense. It, 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 it just has more uh, of a general sense of love. And I'll explain more about that in just a second. Uh, similarly, we have the word phileo. And so people say, well, that's, you know, that's not, that's not divine love. That's not like the love that God has. That's, you know, it's kind of a lesser love. But it's interesting, in John chapter 3, John speaks of, or Jesus is actually speaking of how his father loved him. And he says, the father loved the son. And he uses the word agape. Okay, I can deal with that. But in John chapter 5, he says almost identical thing. And he talks about the father loving the son, and he uses the word phileo. Okay? So, my point is that there's just a whole lot of semantic overlap here. And the reason for that, one of the reasons for that is that starting about 400 years before our New Testament was written, the Greek language, well, all languages are dynamic. All languages are always changing, right? The, the, the English language we speak today is different than the language you learned when you were in, you know, when you were in school, right? We, we just talk different than we did back then, okay? Well, all languages are dynamic and, and Greek is dynamic. And so it was changing and it was evolving. And it's kind of complicated reasons. But, but it got to a point where there was a point initially where phileo was kind of the general term for love. And that was primarily the term people used. But it began to take on, in its semantic range, one of the meanings it began to take on was the meaning to kiss. So that in the Garden of, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when, uh, when uh, Judas, excuse me, when Judas comes to kiss Jesus, the word for kiss there is the word flail. Okay. So this was the general word for love, but it began to take on this, this kind of idea in its semantic range. So beginning about 400 years before the writing of our New Testaments, 
the Greek writers began to start using, kind of slowly and just over a period of time, began to use the word agape more and more because they didn't want it to be confused with the semantic range of, of phileo. Okay? So agape became kind of the general term for love and was used more and more. So by the time you get to the New Testament era and the New Testament is written in the Koinonia Greek, the common Greek of the people, uh, agape has now assumed this more general use for the idea of love. Okay. So what difference does all that make? <laughs> all I've done is bust your bubble, right? All I've said is, okay, it's not this special word that we sometimes men believe. Well, I do think that we want to be precise when we're interpreting the Bible. We want to, do, we want to be precise when we're understanding the Scriptures. And, and certainly we always want to have an elevated view of love, and so I certainly wouldn't want to discourage that. Okay. But I think, for example, in the passage we talked about in John, where Jesus is uh, uh, discussed, it was talking with Peter, and that there's that discussion with Peter. The impl- implications of making a strong distinction between those words is that in that third time, when Jesus says, when Jesus finally, instead of using the word agape, uses the word phileo, the implications is Jesus has lowered the bar for Peter. And I don't think we want to make that conclusion, do we? I don't think we want to make the conclusion that, that since Peter won't elevate his conversation up to agape, Jesus lowers his to phileo. Okay. So, what I'm suggesting to you in that passage, there's probably not a real distinction. The Lord is just driving it home to Peter. Peter, if you love me, you feed my lambs. Okay? So, so I, I just want to bring that out because there's just so much, and like I say, it's really kind of a sidetrack from the passage, but there's so much discussion uh, in, in churches and teaching and that sort of thing about this big, huge distinction between agape and phileo. And I just want to say to you, I don't think that that's legitimate. So, we have then... Love without hypocrisy. And then he goes on and he says, Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, I tell you, I, I think if any of the any of the items in the bullet list hit home to me, these two hit home to me. Because, and I'm sure you've noticed it yourself, My experience is the longer I live in this corrupted culture, the greater is the tendency for me to just kind of let evil slide. But Paul uses two very strong words here. The word abhor, to hate, and the word to cling. Those are two very strong words. And and my tendency is when I see evil repeated over and over again and it's so accepted in the culture and it's everywhere, it's on television, it's in our newspapers, it's in our magazines and you know, it's even in our churches and things like that, eventually I can just get to a point where I have to kind of callous myself to it. Make it so it doesn't bother me anymore because it's just so much of it. And not just only in the world around me, but in my own life as well, right? If I've struggled with sin and struggled with sin and struggled with sin, sometimes it's easier just to kind of give up and not hate it as much. That's not an option. We 
are to abhor evil. He did not say we are to abhor evil people. <laughs> Do you notice where this instruction to abhor evil evil falls? What just preceded it? Love. So somehow, I have got to figure out what does it mean to abhor evil and yet to love the evildoer without hypocrisy. Now, that's a, that's a challenge, isn't it? That's tough. And one of the reasons it's tough is because I have yet to meet an evildoer whose evil I hate who doesn't think I hate him. Right? Anytime I express an abhorrence for the evil somebody's doing, they take it personally. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe there's some rare exceptions, but pretty much they, you know, they take it personally. So I can't depend on others to tell me whether or not I'm being successful in this. Because <laughs> they're not going to know. The person who's being evil is not going to be able to tell me whether I'm being successful at loving without hypocrisy the evildoer while abhorring his evil or her evil. They can't tell me because they can't tell. So I'm, I'm going to have to really depend on God here. I'm going to really have to be dependent on the Lord to help me understand, God, am I loving this person while abhorring their evil? And the fact is, I can't love them unless I abhor their evil. Right? Because their evil is destroying them. Their evil is ruining their lives. And in most cases, unless it's somebody in the, a believer, the evil is sending them to hell. And so, I ought to abhor their evil. And I've got to confess to you here. I don't hate evil like I ought to hate evil. I don't know about you, but, but I don't. And the longer I'm around it, the easier it is just to let it slide. The flip side is we're to cling to that which is good. And there again, it's a very strong word. It's the word he uses for the idea of marriage, of a married couple clinging to one another. Okay? And you know, uh, hopefully most of you are really clinging to your spouse. Okay? You, you'd do anything to hang on to your spouse. Well, that's how we're to be with good. And just like with evil, I saw a couple of you looking at each other there, so I'm not going there, folks. I'm not touching that one. But, but <laughs> more clinging here is recalled for here, Mike. So, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, but just like we are inclined to begin to let evil just kind of slide and not get all uptight about it, unfortunately, we're also inclined to let good just kind of slip away from us, lose our grasp on it, right? So we develop maybe qualities or characters in our life or things that we really value, that we really value and are really precious to us, but over a period of time, sometimes those things begin to kind of slip out of our grasp and we're not as devoted to them and we're not as committed. We're not as clingy to them as we used to be. 
Paul says that the mind that's been renewed and the life that's been transformed is clinging to that which is good. Well, related to that then comes the next idea, the idea of not lagging behind in diligence. Excuse me, I jumped ahead there. Uh, The, the next verse is, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Okay, so we've already talked about this idea a little bit. But, but within the context of the body of Christ, one of the characteristics of our love is it's very familial. It's very much like a family. Have you noticed that? You know, if, if, you're, if you're a fairly recent comer to the body of Christ, it's a little bit of a, of a wow you know, when you first come into the church and you begin to realize, wow, these people kind of love me like my family loves me. Some of you, maybe your family didn't love you, so maybe you don't see that. But, uh, but for those of you who had a good family upbringing, good family experience and family love dynamics, and you came in in church and you went, wow, this is, this is different. Because... Because these people, they kind of treat me like family. Okay. Now remember, this is not a lesser love than agape. This is every bit as great and glorious as agape here. But it has this kind of familial aspect to it. This family thing to it. So we call each other's brothers and sisters. Now we don't do that as much as they used to do it in the old days. But I think it would behoove us maybe to renew that a little bit, right? To keep reminding us that we have this mutuality that we talked about last week. That we really are members one of another. That you really are my brother or my sister in Christ. And so in my relationship with you, I need to be devoted to you like I'm devoted to my family. You know, I think a lot about my kids and, and I even think about my brothers. And you know, My parents, of course, are gone now, but I used to think a lot... Uh, a lot about them. I still have a stepmother. I, I think a lot about her. She's family. You know, I'm, I'm devoted to these people. Well, I'm to be devoted to you in the same way. Because you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember, remember when the people came to Jesus and there was all that crowd around and his brothers and sisters were outside and, and they said, hey, your family wants to see you. And Jesus says, who is my family? But the people who do the will of God. That's my family. So we're to be devoted to one another in, love, in brotherly love, he says. And then he says, um, giving preference to one another in honor. Now, this one's a little difficult to translate. There's a couple different ways to translate it. And one is the way it's translated here in the New American. is the idea of giving preference to one another in honor. So the idea there is that in my relationships with you, I give you preference. I let you get the better position. I let you have the more privileged circumstance. And I do that as an expression of honor to you. And you reciprocate. You do it with me as an expression of honor to me. So it's the idea that we get in Philippians chapter 2 when... When Paul tells us in Philippians 
that we're to have this mind of Christ. He gets to that a couple of verses after the passage I'm going to refer to. But it's the idea of the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is, is the mind of considering others more important than yourselves. Is that how you think instinctively? When you're around other people, you think this person's more important than me. It's not that they are more important. We've already talked about that, right? It's not that they are more important. It's that that's how we treat people. So that's one way to view it. The other way, and it's, it's all related, it's all very similar, but the other way to read it is the, the, the Greek word here actually has the idea of to lead or to be out front. Okay. So some commentators, when they look at this passage, they understand him saying, okay, to be out front, leading in giving honor, okay, to others. So some, some even express it as a competition. <laughs> I'm in com- competition with you to see which one of us can give the most honor to others. Okay. Well, uh, that's kind of a fun way to think, but I don't think it's very constructive <laughs> because I think that can lead to a little insincerity. You know, that's where we get into flattery. You know, in order for me to outdo you in giving honor to somebody else, you know, I start loading it on, and maybe it's not sincere. You know, so I, I want to stay away from the idea of competition. But what I do like about that way of looking at things is it gives the idea of being out in front, being out in front in giving honor, being an example. Being a leader in the church of honoring other people. And as I was thinking about this, uh, the last couple of days I was thinking about this, and I've known some people like this, and I was, so I was just thinking some examples, and, and one of the best examples I can think of, of somebody who's out in front, just honoring other people, and, and they really are an example to me, is my own brother. I've got a brother, a year older than I am, his name's Jerry, and uh, and this may be hard to believe, but he's as much of a talker as I am. Okay, when we were growing up, I had the reputation for being the talker in the family, but somewhere along the line, I think he passed me up. Okay, so when the two of us are together, it's a question of which one can get the other guy to shut up. You know, so so he's a talker, and he and and he's a storyteller. He's always always telling stories, and he'll go on and on until he bores you to death with all his stories. And his stories are usually about people. People he's met, people he's come across, people he's encountered, and something about them. And the thing that the thing about Jerry, as I was thinking about this, the thing about Jerry is he's always excited about these other people he's always talking about, and he's always you know he's telling me about the the clerk he met in Home Depot, you know, and he got talking to him and he found out this person's and he's and he's talking about how neat this person was because they were doing this or they were. They have this project going on, or they're really good at this, or and you know, and then he's and then he's telling me about some some uh, kid that he was in high school choir with, a high school quartet with, that now lives up here in Northwest Oklahoma, Northeast Oklahoma, up near Tahlequah. And he, he's telling me about him and about how he's involved doing all this stuff, and he's and he's always talking about people, and he's always telling me how cool something about them is. And as I thought about it, as I think about that yesterday, and I was thinking about, I don't know if I've ever heard my brother gossip. I'm sure he probably does. We all struggle with it, you know. But whenever he's talking about other people, he's building them up. He's telling me how cool they are. 
There are people I could care less about. <laughs> you know? Like I said, he can bore me to death with his stories, okay? Because I want to tell my stories, you know? <laughs> uh, so, he's boring me to death. But he's actually really enthused about this person and something about them. And so enthused, he needs to tell me and everybody else he can about them. And he's always meeting people. He's a very outgoing person. He's always meeting people and finding out things about them and, and stuff. And, and, and so he's just all, you know, every time I'm with him, he's all, you know, I could be, we can be driving, you know, down the street in Lawrence and we drive past them. Oh, if there's some, you know, this guy, you know, there's something about, you know, and he starts telling me this story and he's honoring. I don't know if he knows that's what he's doing. I don't think he cares. He just really is enthused about how cool people are. Wow. How many of us, when we're talking about other people, are staying, saying stuff we shouldn't be saying? Paul says, when it comes to this area of giving honor, we need to be out in front. We need to be setting an example. Not competing with each other and being insincere. But I could afford to be a lot more like my brother. I could afford to be a lot more the kind of person who when you hear me talking about somebody, I'm honoring them. Well, then, then comes the next passage, the next uh, thought we were going to look at. He says, not lagging behind in diligence. Well, this is another one of those areas that we can kind of let slip, isn't it? <laughs> this area of diligence. We start out, we, you know, we know what God wants us to do and we get busy doing it. And after, you know, and when we first start doing it, it's pretty exciting. But after a while, it can get a little mundane. And when things start getting mundane, when they've kind of lost the newness, we can kind of start lagging behind in diligence. When I was, when I was a young man, I was a scout leader, boy scout leader in uh, Colorado. And uh, responsible, uh, partially responsible for a scout troop. And of course, in Colorado, you take your kids out and you go out and you, what do you do? You go out hiking in the mountains. We were always going out hiking in the mountains and I'd take these kids out, you know. And of course, they range in age and size and so, so some are in better shape than others. And, you know, we go out and we take these long hikes, you know, we hike for several miles in the mountains, you know. And I learned something as I would do this with these kids because We'd start out and we'd have a line of kids and we'd be walking this path and, you know, after a half a mile or a mile or so, I'd look back and there's these stragglers, right? There's always the stragglers. Do you ever notice the stragglers are always in the back or never in the front? Unless you turn them around. Unless you turn them around. And that's what I learned. So I'd, I'd, we'd go for a while and these guys would start straggling and we'd stop to rest. And I'd say, okay, you guys go up front. And when I got them up front, you know what happens? They take off like a bat. <laughs> and now the guys who were up front taking off like a bat are back there straggling. It happened every time. So I just rotate them. Yeah? I just rotate them and get those stragglers up front. Well, some of us need to be taken from back and back and put up front because we're straggling when it comes to diligence. Some of that initial fervor and zeal we had for Christ and for the work of God, we've lost it. It slipped out of our grasp. He said, don't lag behind in diligence. And then related to that is that fervency in the Spirit, the next thing on this list. Be fervent, he says, in Spirit. And that word fervent is... You know, it can be used for the idea of a 
boiling pot. Yeah. You ever watch the pot boil? They don't, do they? No. Well, they do. Eventually, they do. Watch a pot boil. When you go home this afternoon, get a pot, put some water in it, put it on the stove, crank it up high, stand there for an hour and a half, it'll start to boil. I promise you it will. It'll boil eventually, okay? And as it's boiling, and steam's going off, and that's the way I need to be in the Spirit of God. Except that boiling pot's pretty wild, right? It's pretty uncontrolled. Except it, you know, it's within the of pots, but you know, water's splatting everywhere and everything. Okay, that's not what we want your zeal to do. We don't want your fervency for God to be like dynamite that just destroys everything in its, in its reach. Okay, we want it to be controlled. What is it controlled by? Well, it's controlled by the next thing in the list: a slave of God. So this. Fervency of the Spirit that I have this 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 bubbling over this zeal that God wants me to have is brought into subjection to God's Lordship in my life. And so it doesn't always look like dynamite exploding or a pot boiling. It doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it looks like me getting down on my hands and knees with a bowl of water and a towel and washing somebody's feet. Sometimes it looks like just sitting and listening to somebody and not saying a word because they need to be listened to. Sometimes it involves going into a closet and praying with all my heart where nobody else can see me because that's what the need of the hour is. So, it's a, it's a fervency, it's a zeal, but it's a zeal that is brought in subjection to the Lordship of Christ. I've known a lot of people who are zealous, who do far more damage than good. Christians who are zealous, who do more damage than good. And I don't want to be like that. But I do want to be fervent. I do want to be zealous. I do want to be passionate. I just don't want to be destructive. And then he says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And I kind of like those, several other commentators picked up on this. I kind of like those three going together. Rejoicing in hope. I am, I'm commanded to rejoice. Rejoicing is not something that just happens. I mean, sometimes it does. But we can't take it for granted. Have you noticed that? Have you ever noticed there are times in your life when you just aren't doing it? Because it doesn't always just come naturally, right? That's why there are commands in Scripture that tell us to do it. Because there are times when we don't. And we don't feel like it. And whatever, do not come to me when I'm feeling like that. And tell me I ought to rejoice because I'll bite your head off. But that's exactly what the Lord does, doesn't He? He comes to me in those times and He says, Rejoice. In Thessalonians, He says, Rejoice always. So I'm always to be rejoicing. Now, I don't believe I'm rejoicing for every circumstance in my life. 
There are many horrific tragedies we have in life, and I don't expect God wants us to be thankful that that tragedy has happened. If we've lost a child in a terrible accident, if we've, if we've been the victim of a terrible crime, I don't think God wants us to say, God, thank you, my child died in a terrible accident. I don't think, I don't think that's the way God is. That's not what He wants. But He does want us rejoicing in that circumstance. Well, how can I do that? I have circumstances that are just in my life, and you do in your life. They're just horrific circumstances. How do I rejoice in that circumstance? Rejoicing in hope, he says. I rejoice in hope. See, my circumstances don't always give me cause for rejoicing, but my hope does. So whatever my circumstances, I always have hope. Not hope in I hope so, but hope in what I know ultimately God is going to do. Knowing ultimately what God is going to do, I rejoice in that, in any circumstances of life I'm in. But while I'm going through some of, the, some of those circumstances which are not naturally inducive to rejoicing, those ugly circumstances in my life, he says, persevere in tribulation. That's the next thing on the list. Persevere in tribulation. Some of you are going through tribulation you're about to give up, right? Don't do it. Don't give up. Hang in there. One way you can hang in there is by rejoicing in hope. But sometimes you hang in there just by hanging in there. Sometimes you just go, okay, this is, this is more than I can handle, but it's not more than I can handle because God doesn't give me more than I can handle. So I can't do much more here than just hang on and I'm going to hang on. I'm just going to hang on. You know, it's kind of like one of those rides at the carnival, you know, where you're sure you're going to go flying off into outer space. <laughs> of course, they got safety bars on you to keep you in place, but it doesn't feel like that. So what are you doing? You're hanging on for all it's worth. And some of you are going through tribulation where that's where you need to do. That's what you need to do. You need to hang on for all your work. And by the way, there is a safety bar. Devoted to prayer. That's the other part of that. In those circumstances of life, we're rejoicing, we're hanging on, and we are devoted to prayer. And for many of us, one of the reasons our circumstances are so difficult is because we've lost our devotion to prayer. Prayer is not our immediate, instinctive response to the tribulations we face in life and to the difficulties we face. So we are to be devoted to prayer. And then very quickly he says, Contributing to the needs of the saint. And the word contributing there is the word fellowship. So it's fellowshipping in the needs of the saints. When we think of fellowship, what do we think of? You know, we think of a potluck dinner at the church, right? <laughs> okay. But fellowship is the idea of mutuality and sharing. And what he's saying there is that one of the things we fellowship in, one of the things we share in, is one another's needs. So when I see or observe another person in need, I take it as my need. That's fellowshipping. It's now my need. Now, what do I do if I have resources and I have a need? I meet it, right? When I get up in the morning and I'm hungry and there's food in the refrigerator and on the shelf, you know, I do what you guys do. I feed it. 
I feed my need. Okay. Now, your need, if I am fellowshipping with you, your need is my need. And if you can't meet it, and I have the resources, I can do that. Okay? And then another way that we meet the needs of others is by showing hospitality. Now, I'm not real good at this thing about hospitality. Fortunately, my, wife, my, my uh, Lord has given me a wife who is. You know, Because I like my life very simple and unbothered. You know, I, you know, I like my house quiet, you know, except when I'm making the noise. You know, I like my house and I don't like to, you know. But my wife, bless her, is always thinking of ways to disrupt my life by inviting other people in. So she, you know, Rick, you know, Sunday I want to bring a couple of my little kids over from my Sunday school class, kindergarten class, you know. So she does this every every few months. She just brings a couple kids from Sunday school class, you know, and they come in on Sunday. Well, they're not very disruptive because I go take my nap anyway and let my wife handle them, okay? But, you know, but, you know, she's always, you know, we uh, recently we were going up to a, uh, uh, going up to watch a, uh, uh, a guy do a performance of, of uh, C.S. Lewis. Okay, it's an hour and a half long, two hour long thing of C.S. Lewis. And, you know, so I, I saw it and I knew my wife wanted to do it. So I said, let's go do this. So we, we go to do this thing. You know, what does she do? You mean, she says, who can I take with me? Yeah. Who can, you know, so she gets on the phone and she starts calling people, you know. And let's just go. You know, why make a production out of this? But well, my wife makes a production because that's what hospitality is. Hospitality is being a friend to a stranger. Meeting the needs of others. Going out of your way. The word there, it says practicing here in the New American, but the word is actually to pursue, to really vigorously pursue this area of hospitality. Well, you've got a list of things there. Which one of those do you think that God would have you working on this week? Or maybe this month or maybe the next six months? Is there one or maybe two things in that list? Okay. Next week we'll go on and find out what else he's got in his list.